This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Today a special with Gary Neville, universally loved as a player, well almost, now an important voice within the game as a pundit at Sky, a co-owner of League 2 Salford and part of the group that's calling for an independent regulator to oversee football in the UK. He's written a book called The People's Game where he covers a lot of the things we've spoken about on this podcast, inequality, the Super League, clubs going out of business, human rights, racism, the importance of the women's game. Questions then in a game riddled with self-interest at all levels. Can anyone make a difference? Can he? Can a regulator work when so many people, especially the Premier League, don't want it? And what would it look like? If we want change in the game, we need people with profile and influence to talk about it. And Gary Neville has both of those. With that comes questions about literally everything he's done and does in his career. So we'll ask some of them, but hopefully in a nice way. And since he's here, we'll ask him about Manchester United. And of course, whether he really has never had crap. This is the Guardian Football Weekly. Barry Glendenning is here, as he always is. Hey, Baz. Hi, Max. Hi, Gary. A key part of this is Gary Neville being here, and he joins us. How are you, mate? I'm good. I'm good. Yes, I wasn't that popular during my football career, <laughs> if you watch Manchester United on a weekly basis. <laughs> yes, I did know. Um, look, you've written um, The People's Game. Why, why write the book? It, to be honest with you, it's something that I've been thinking about for sort of three or four years, um, and eventually thought I'm going to go for it off the back I suppose the Super League was the final straw uh, and think, felt like I just needed to document some thoughts I also got great contributors so Paul Barber, Steve Parrish, Rick Parry, uh, Troy Townsend many others, Tracy Crouch obviously who was part of the fan led, obviously who conducted the fan led review um, and, and just tried to bring together as sort of uh, as many voices as possible um, to encapsulate what I feel is a really important moment for the game, which is obviously off the back of the fan-led review, it's important to keep momentum so that we uh, implement and execute the regulator. It needs to come in. I think that there are so many things now that have happened over a, over a period of time that mean that we cannot leave the, the, the running of English football in the hands of Roman Abramovich. Well, it was at the time Roman Abramovich. Um, it's now no longer Roman Abramovich. We can't, we can't leave the running of the English game in the hands of American investment funds and nation states. It's as simple as that. 
I have no problem with American investment funds coming into football in this country because I know we can't stop it. It's a capitalist country. I'm not going to overturn capitalism. I actually think we've benefited from investment into the Premier League and it's a product that everyone around the world enjoys. But however, there needs to be boundaries and there needs to be lanes. And I think at this moment in time, we're in danger. I think the Super League, big picture, more American investment funds. I actually think American investment funds are a greater danger to English football than actually nation states. Nation states bring their own concerns and their own issues, which I think obviously we can talk about separately. But I don't think they're here to actually destroy... Well, I don't think they're here to fundamentally change the rules of the game in this country. I think American investment funds actually are. They want to push all the wealth to the top and they also want to create more of a franchise type football which I think is something that goes against everything that we believe in. I um it would be impressive if you overturned capitalism and suddenly Gary Neville brings in communism to this country. Do you ever do you ever look at football and think god it's bleak. Like we like there are lots of serious things in the book. There are lots of things we've talked about in the podcast. We wrestle with how much we should talk about them and how much we should just talk about you know a, a beautiful goal or whatever. But do you ever sit back and go God, this is depressing. Do you know something? I flip on a constant basis in my life through my experiences of what, commentating on a game on like Monday night or seeing Haaland on the first game, first day of the season, you know, in blistering form to a point whereby then, you know, a week or so later, you'll come across a League Two club or a League One club who are struggling for funding and might go out of business. And that's the bit that I feel that we can have. I feel generally we can have both, but I feel like that in my politics. I feel like that we can have capitalism, but we can have a little bit of compassion and that we don't need to have food banks. And I feel that in football is a representation of current society. We have a hierarchy and an elite, but we also have the clubs that need the food banks and are basically begging all the time. And I don't think it doesn't need to be like that. The problem is with English football, all the power is in the Premier League. It's not with the FA. The FA is essentially an organisation that carries no power at all or authority. Um, and the Premier League is stuck. If you, if you speak to any, I mean, to be fair, Steve Parish, Paul Barber, they cover this within the book, actually, that they can't get anything through. And that's actually the top six can't get anything through. So if you speak to the top six, they may want to give more money to the sort of lower leagues, but they want that to potentially be at the expense of the fourteen. Whereas the 14 might want to give some money to the lower clubs. They want that to be at the expense of the top six. And because they've got this uh, constitution, which actually is a long, it's 30 year old constitution, they're actually stuck and can't shift anything forward. The concern I have is that you've now got American investment funds coming in within the top six, but they're now starting to acquire se- uh, sections of clubs below that. And they're also starting to get Newcastle on side. And before we know it, they could do something quite dangerous, I believe, um, and get that 14 volts that they need to be able to sort of shift, I suppose, in some ways, the ethos of what English football is, which is the, the, the pyramid, promotion, relegation, and that sacrosanct to us. Gary, on, on the subject of, you know, actual football and the noise that surrounds it, you, you explain in the book, and we all know, that when news of the ES... L uh, started to filter through. You were on Co-Coms and a Man U Burnley game, and then you had to switch into sort of rant mode. You gave this very from the heart diatribe, I suppose, uh, immediately after the game. Um, do, do you think you sort of personally set the agenda so that the rest of us quickly fell into line? 
I, I, I don't, I would never say that. I know that people have said to me that what I did, what I did straight after the game did help set the agenda. Um, I do believe actually the fans themselves and the way in which they then sort of, you know, whip up a frenzy on social media. I think you, the media, the way in which you responded to it uh, in general, and then in turn, I think government, um, I think played a big part, particularly on this one. So I think it wasn't just a case of sort of, I mean, I may have been the first one to go. Um, I'd been, to be fair, on the edge, Barry and Max, for the previous 12 months. I'd been on the edge of going. Uh, what really what really got to me was sitting in the League Two, um, the League Two calls during COVID and that rescue package that League One and League Two clubs have been asking for didn't come for about 10 to 12 months. And I was seeing the desperation of the clubs on the calls and the chairman and the sort of the executives on the calls of League Two clubs. Yet I was then going to watch Premier League football and looking at sort of all the excess and uh, you know the, the excess that exists. And they were still buying players and they were still doing all the things that they do, spending a billion pounds every transfer window. And, you know, they just couldn't lend, a, you know, 150, 200 million pounds to League One and Two. So I'd been ready to go for a bit, to be honest with you, because I just felt as though it was wrong. And um, I think that it, it was a little bit from the heart, um, but it, it was needed. And big picture was, came before that, where that was a power grab. Then Super League comes, which was a massive power grab and a shift, not just for English football, but for all football. And I think now is the time for us to sort of, if you like, pull them back. Um, and that's me, with Manchester United sat behind me, as a Manchester United fan who's, who's lived off the Premier League for 20, 30 years in my life. But I do feel as though what we did on Sky in that 24 hours myself, then Jamie Carragher and Dave Jones the night after, and all the other reporters and presenters, it did have an influence, I think, but I don't think it was the sort of fundamental thing. I mean, it's, it's brilliantly explained in the book, and it's a really exciting time to be on the telly or even be doing this. And like, it was a bonkers three days. I remember because it sort of fell on the Tuesday, and I was watching Cambridge v Leighton Orient from like someone's flat above Brisbane Road. And then the, just all the messages coming in going, They've dropped, Chelsea have dropped out, Spurs have dropped out. And like it ends with you on a Zoom call with Boris Johnson. And it's fair to say you're not his biggest fan. Um, he doesn't necessarily have a lot of fans on this Zoom call, I would suggest. How, how we, Was that weird? And how hard was it to give him credit and, and Brexit credit for the demise of the Super League? Because that hurt me a bit, in a way. I didn't give him credit. I mean, what... Look, I think Boris Johnson knew about Super League, by the way, a week before. I think he knew a week before. His his chief of staff called me um, a couple of days after, and that's when they were trying to sort of, if you like, um, understand the detail of it and why we were so against it. But I think things like this will have gone to his office, maybe not directly to him in the, in, in the few days before it was announced. What then he did was obviously wait for which way the wind was going to blow. And the wind obviously blew in one direction, so he then follows the wind. It's a typical political play. It was a bonkers two or three days. It, there's nothing better, is there, than seeing what would be the hierarchy in the elite bottle it and have to back down when they try and basically bully people. And that's what it was. It was a bully play, this. Um, to walk away with the crown jewels of English football, take themselves into a European league that meant that other English teams probably could never get into it. I mean, the arrogance and the sheer stupidity of it was incredible. But it tells you how dangerous these people are and what they're willing to do. And I don't think that... I, I will never forgive those six owners. Those six owners, if they could have got away with this, 
would have continued, would, would, would have followed through with it. And uh, Laporte, Real Madrid, uh, Juventus, uh, they're still doing this. They're still going for this bad. This has not gone away. They're still working on this. And what they're also trying to do is, 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 is affect UEFA's Champions League format to a point where that becomes a little bit of a sort of a, a, a Super League in itself. And if you speak to people like Steve, uh, Steve Parrish, Paul Barber, the gap is growing, not just between the Premier League and the Championship, which we know there is an absolute massive hole or, or a cliff edge. Um, you've also got this massive gap now that's getting bigger between the 6 and the 14. And it is big and it will always be big, but we can't afford to let that happen. It's interesting, you, you mentioned that there's the 6 and the 14 in the Premier League. Then you've got the 14 really not necessarily signing with the EFL. Then you've got the big EFL clubs not agreeing with the small EFL clubs. Then you've got the bottom of League Two not really wanting to help out the National League. Like the idea of the football family is kind of bullshit, right? Everyone, it's riddled with self-interest. So so if that's the case, can a regulator work and how? Yeah, I think it can work because it needs to bang the heads together of these people. You're absolutely right. Everyone is full of self-interest and greed. There are very few within the actual football pyramid who are in positions of ownership that actually will vote for something that's better for the game than for, for, them, than for themselves. Uh, there have been examples of it. Port Vale did it within League Two in COVID. Um, Carol at Port Vale was, was amazing. Um, she voted for the league to stop when she was on the brink of playoffs and it was damaging to her club. Um, but then there are others that basically won't and many won't. And I genuinely believe there needs to be this uh, restructure of the governance of English football. We do need an independent regulator. It needs policing. We cannot allow the power to, ha- to, to, to rest in the hands of American investment funds and the owners of the top six clubs. Uh, we need to make sure that we are fairer with the distribution. We sign up to a long lease, if you like, so that we never leave the English pyramid. Things that, to be fair, mean that the Super League can never come back um, with that, you know, in the form that it obviously did. Uh, I'm not against sort of improving formats, but what we need to do is make sure that it has those sort of principles that are important to us. But you're absolutely right; it's full of self-interest and greed. You know, you've got the top club, the bottom club in the in the, in the Premier League getting 100 million. You've got the top of the Championship getting five or six, unless they're a parachute club, and then they get 44 million. And then you've got this massive problem with parachute payments. I think Rick Parrish summed it up brilliantly. If there wasn't a cliff edge, you wouldn't need a parachute. You know, what it should be is a step down. There should be sporting disappointment, some economic disappointment if you get relegated from the Premier League. The problem is it becomes a disaster. And Steve Parrish told us that he has two computers in his office. One is if they stay up in the Premier League and one is if they go down. And that one, if they go down, has a number at the bottom which says minus 120 million. Now, he can sell players... But that's the, the loss that his club will incur if they go down. I said, Steve, I don't want to watch Premier League football knowing that you've got a computer on that side of the actual room that says 120 million. Maybe it says 30 to 40 million, but that means you could sell Wilfred Zaha for 30, 40 million. You break even, you're back to normal again, and you're sustainable. And then you throw forward what would be, say, for instance, that sort of our position at Salford, we spend a lot more than our revenue. Uh, and you have to address that and you have to decide is that something that um, distorts League Two? Is that something that should be allowed? From our point of view, we put owner funding in above our revenue level. So my view on sustainability in English football is that you do one of two things. 
you either spend the money that you can generate through normal means, commercial revenue, match tickets, sales of shirts, etc., and that's what you have to spend on players and the rest of your costs, or you spend more than your revenue, and that's where the owner should have to put their money in first, so that actually you know that that club can't go bankrupt and that club can't end up where Barry ended up. Gary, um, how can an independent regulator be expected to do their job as long as there are sort of state-owned clubs with endless resources to to challenge them in the courts legally in cases that can drag on for years and years and years? It, ha- it has to go through legislation in Parliament. This is why I've always said that, unfortunately, it is unfortunate that the government is going to have to interfere in football in this country. And then you'll hear people say, well, we know governments aren't allowed to interfere in football because it's a FIFA rule. I'm not talking about interfering in the running of the game, but they have to interfere in, in the sense of, you know, we have other regulators in other industries, whether it be media, whether it be the banking industry, whether it be energy. Um, you know, the banking crisis of two, late 2006, seven, where the banks, to be fair, had put us all in grave danger in this country and around the world, they needed basically rowing. No, they needed, they needed to be basically controlled. And that's what football is. Football is too important in this country uh, for it to be allowed to be run by owners who are full of self-greed and interest, self-interest and have different motives to what the fan has. The fan in this country wants to be able to go and watch the team. They want it to be affordable. They want it to be accessible. They want to see a passion on the pitch. They want to see good football. Their team win, lose or draw. They don't want to have to basically, be, I suppose, thinking that the game's going to be taken away from them on a consistent basis by people at the top who don't think like we do. American investment funds do not think like the English football fan in this country. They want to extract and take. They don't want to give back and, and basically live in the spirit of what English football is. They don't. They're not interested in that. You, you talked about Salford there and we got a lot of questions about your ownership of Salford and actually you, you bring in Andy Holt who runs Accrington Stanley in a different way who, who kind of thinks what you are doing is being irresponsible. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, well, the reason we brought Andy Holt into the book is that he's been a long-time critic of, well, me personally on social media and of obviously the way in which we do things at Salford. Andy's a very traditional uh, thinker around football ownership this is the money that we generate. This is the money that we spend. So that that is a model that I have to say, I think when I was at Manchester United, I think David Gill was very fond of that model because he was behind FFP. Um, and I think that a lot of people are supportive of FFP in its original form, whereby you don't distort the sponsorship contracts like City have done and others will do. Uh, Leicester have done, say, for instance. Um, and Andy is one of those people who thinks quite traditionally. I dispute, I've disputed FFP for 12 to 15 years. And the reason I dispute that is without a Blackburn, a Chelsea, a Manchester City, you would have Manchester United, Liverpool and Arsenal at the top, probably 99 out of 100 years and we'd end up with a Bayern Munich. I don't want Bayern Munich in this country. I want where the situation where they win the league every single year. I want us to have a competitive Premier League where the elite can be challenged. That means we need new elite coming forward all the time. That means that Blackburn, Leeds, Leicester, Chelsea, all these clubs who have broken into that top five or six that existed in the 80s have done so through investment. And they've done so through safe investment where the owners have got the money, they put the money in 
And actually, Chelsea can rise to being Champions League winners. They can rise to being Premier League winners. Leicester can win the Premier League. I believe that's benefited our country. So all we need to do is make sure that when owners put their money in or when they sign contracts for players whereby they're hundreds of millions, it goes beyond the revenues of the club's natural limits, that the owners have that money to invest so that they make sure that that club can't go bankrupt. So, so isn't the point, you know, people are worried about you and Salford because if you all get bored, which obviously you say you won't, and just all bugger off, that they would be really in a pickle. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Max. And that's where I, so what, what, what I've suggested is that let's say, for instance, the, the, the signing of contracts for players is three years in League Two and let's say it's five years in the Premier League. And we know what Salford, so what we have to do every year at Salford is submit a business plan to the league of exactly what it is, our revenues are going to be and what our expenditure is going to be. League Two is the only league that works like this. At the beginning of the year, League Two, the financial director of the EFL, will look at our finances. They'll see that that's the revenue we're likely to do based on last year's crowds, last year's revenues from commercial sponsorships. They'll realise what our playing budget is and then there's a gap. They ask us to put that money in at the start of the season. That's what they ask us to do. If then we have a player, say for instance, in the second year, let's say we sign two year contracts or three year contracts, we may need to in future, if a regulator comes in, put the money in to cover that two years or guarantee it through a bank uh, guarantee or a bond. So I'm not saying that Salford should be, should be able to continue to, to do what it's doing without making sure that you have got the money and you're good for the money. Owners, I think, should be allowed to invest into football clubs above the level of the revenues as long as they're good for their money. We, we do this all the time, don't we? If you think about when you go for a mortgage, the bank will lend you the money based on your salary and what the sort of expected income is. That's what we should be doing in football. We should be, finan we should be financially monitoring clubs on a consistent basis, making sure they've got the money behind the contracts that they sign. And that's all I'm asking for. It's a difference of opinion of how you achieve sustainability with Andy. Andy believes you should only be able to spend the revenue that you make. I believe you should be able to top that up with owner funding that should be guaranteed. I think the reason I'm right is because I believe then what you allow is Salford to go from step eight of English football up to step two. If we only ever were able to spend our revenue, we would be stuck in non-league forevermore. And I don't believe Salford as a football club or as a city shouldn't be able to rise the way in which Wimbledon rose all those years ago or Bournemouth did, for instance, out of, you know, the League Two up to the Premier League. I believe we should be able to challenge the elite and the established clubs through new clubs coming forward. Andy doesn't believe that we should be able to do that in a way which I do. Uh, you're listening to a Football Weekly special with Gary Neville. We'll be back in a second. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly with uh, Gary Neville's written a book, The People's Game, a view from a front seat in football. You write a lot, Gary, about human rights, about the Saudi takeover of Newcastle, about Abu Dhabi and Manchester City. How has your view of those types of ownerships changed? You know, I when Abu Dhabi came into City and when Saudi Arabia came into Newcastle, 
a, that was what a 10 year difference, maybe a bit longer. How has it changed in that time? I think we've become a lot more alert in the last 12 months. I know some people have been alert for a long time, but I think we've become a lot more alert in the last 12 months because of Abramovich and his links to Putin. And obviously his links to Putin were always there, but how that actually state-owned football clubs could potentially mean that there are problems in the future. So I've always been supportive of... I, I, I've not had a problem with Abu Dhabi coming into Manchester. So there's no point in me sitting here now saying because of because of Abramovich's ownership and what's happened with Putin that I believe that Manchester City ownership is bad. However, what I do believe is wrong is the lack of transparency around the fit and proper owners test. No one knows how Newcastle, Newcastle's ownership was allowed into English football. I've not got a problem with them coming in because I believe in integration and I believe in actually, to be fair, I believe they should be exposed over here that the Saudi ownership and when I say exposed, they should have to speak up. They should have to stand up to scrutiny. Uh, within the book, I suggest that twice a year, once twice a year, the ownership of the PIF fund should have to come over here and sit in front of a common style select type environment with people like yourselves or fans and answer questions and become, I suppose, I don't, I, don't, I don't believe it's acceptable anymore for football clubs to be owned by people who don't turn up and don't show up and don't speak. It, it, you know, the Glazer family over here are Saudi Arabian owners of Newcastle. Um, so I think more transparency around the fit and proper owners test is needed. I think more exposure and debate around the things that they're doing wrong in their country and they have to answer to that in this country if they're owning a football club because a football club isn't an ordinary business. Um, I do talk about the human rights issues, which are obviously, I think, a massive problem for us in this country, in the Middle East. But it's a Middle East, it is a Middle Eastern problem. It's region-wide. It's not just Abu Dhabi. It's not just Saudi Arabia. It, it exists all across the Middle East. So how did Saudi Arabia become allowed into English football? Was it the government? Was it, is it, you know, the suggestion is it was Boris Johnson who was pushing that. The suggestion is that it was pushed from high above. Now, if that's the case, let's know about it. Just because we're doing arms deals with Saudi Arabia and he wants to do a favour in return, that should be something that is transparent and should be something that we know about. We don't know anything about how the PIF fund and Newcastle's ownership came into this country. I would always say, though, and my position has always been, we should allow them in. However, they should be exposed to us, the, the media, the fans, their own fans they should also have to commit to regeneration like manchester city have done they can't just come in with a free ticket and use it as a marketing tool we know that's why they're here for validation and for marketing and to gain credibility and to you could argue on their side they want to reintegrate into the world well let's take it at its most positive sense and say they are trying to reintegrate into our way of of working well okay then you have to stand up and speak up and you have to be exposed to the media in this country and what you're doing in your own country it does feel wrong, though, given the human rights record. You know, I understand, you know, that that's their way of doing it, of regenerating it. And I wonder, do you, do you wrestle with that sky? Do you think you talk about those things enough? It's probably one of the areas we don't, we, you know, we have entered into, I think, the political and social aspects a lot in the last four or five years at Sky. I'm willing to talk more about them. I think that's probably one of the areas you could definitely argue that we don't cover in as much detail. Um, could be lack of understanding, lack of willingness to do so. There's no doubt it exists. I've been over to Qatar now a few times in the last um, three or four years, and obviously I'm aware of the uh, I'm aware of obviously what's happened over there in respect of your construction workers, passports being taken off people, 
Um, there's no doubt though, there's been a great shift over there because of the scrutiny that the World Cup has brought. And that's what I believe sometimes can happen through football. We can sometimes make big change through football. And you're right, we need to discuss these issues. That, that's why I've been open and discussed them in the book. You know, I've gone into detail on them in the book in terms of the human rights issues, the killing of the Saudi journalists, you know, things like that we've covered in detail. Because we won't, I won't ignore them when I'm doing a book of that nature. However, they're in this country. The Abu Dhabi investment came into Manchester 10, 15 years ago. Abramovich came and sailed into English football 20 years ago. There may have been the odd, probably from, probably from uh, publications like The Guardian, actually. There may have been the odd people, the odd person, journalist, who was unhappy with it. But we've all celebrated and laughed and joked and admired Chelsea for 15 years, whether it be... Iron Robin, or whether it be Eden Hazard, or whether it be now Mason Mount, we've all celebrated what's happened at Chelsea at times in this last 15 years, knowing that The Guardian and The Independent and other publications have alerted us to the fact that their owner was close to Putin. We've always known he was close to Putin, so, but we've accepted it. So we all, I think, are liable for not covering these major political issues that are uncomfortable over a long period of time. Yeah, we, we got a lot of questions about your interview with David Beckham actually on the overlap about why you didn't ask anything about, you know, human rights abuses there. I wonder if you weren't allowed to or if you wanted to or, or what the situation was. To, to, to be honest with you, if I was interviewing David Beckham, you know, I, I would, so last week when I went, went into Derek Ten Hag, I didn't ask him about the, uh, you know, the Manchester United owners' dividends policy. I didn't ask him about the, uh, you know, things that really I, I have on my mind. I wouldn't ask David Beckham about that. I just wouldn't ask him about human rights in Qatar. You know, the reality of it is he has a deal with Qatar. Um, he's comfortable with that. There are other people, to be fair, in Europe, in this country. Where, you know, English players will all go over to the World Cup this summer. The FA will go over to the World Cup this summer in Qatar and play in Qatar. If they were that annoyed about it, they wouldn't go. So everywhere, I've been to Qatar for the last 10, 15 years. I've been going to, to Dubai since 2002. So you could argue in some ways that I'm integrated into Middle Eastern society and I actually like the idea of basically working in the Middle East myself. I'll work with Middle Eastern TV companies during the tournament in, in, in December uh, and have no problem with that, but still feel comfortable calling out their human rights. I wouldn't ask David Beckham about human rights in Qatar. I just wouldn't do that. But it's slightly different. It's slightly different, you know, him taking the money rather than a player. And you know, in England, Harry Kane, if he wants to play in the World Cup, has to go there. It's a slight, it is slightly different, I would suggest. You could argue it's slightly different, but I mean, the, the reality of it is that, you know, Harry Kane was willing to go and play for Manchester City. True, yeah. That's got Abu Dhabi ownership. Uh, Jack Grealish has gone to Manchester City playing for Abu Dhabi ownership. They, had to, they were willing to take the money. So, you know, we, uh, that's, the, that's the reality of life. I will, I'm willing to go over and spend money in Abu Dhabi or spend money in Qatar, spend money in the Middle East, uh, receive money from them for programmes or for what would be television appearances. The reality of it is, I genuinely believe that every region in the world has its own crap. They do. They have their own issues, their own things that they've got to deal with. My view would be that I'd rather work in a world whereby we actually do continue to deal with these countries and these regions. But what we try and do is, is soften their approaches on things like human rights and workers' rights and the LGBT rights, 
These are issues that need to be addressed and dealt with. Do we do that out of the room or do we do that in the room? I've always felt we should do that in the room. So I've been critical of Qatar, of their approach to human rights, workers' rights. I've highlighted it. But I also feel comfortable, to be fair, having conversations with them and integrating with them to try and alert them to the fact that why don't you've got all this money? Why don't you just pay your workers more money and put them in better accommodation and better conditions? So I can sit there and not discuss it and not take the money and not highlight it, or I can do the other one, which I feel comfortable with, which is basically working in a world where we're all different. And you know, I don't think we're particularly great right in this country. I think we've had the worst leadership we've ever had in this last two or three years. So they laugh at us all around the world, whether it's in Spain, whether it's in Qatar, whether it's in America, they're laughing at us at this moment in time. Um, and so I think every region, every country has its own issues. I do believe we should be negotiating, debating, discussing with these countries rather than, if you like, making these what would be stands of, I'm never going to do business with them. I do believe we should be doing business with them. It'll get better with Liz Trust, don't worry. Sorry. Gary, on the, on the subject of Newcastle's ownership, you say in the book, uh, modern life could start getting very tricky if we want to avoid all Saudi investment. And, you know, you mentioned Uber and Disney and Twitter in which the Saudis have invested. But is there not a massive difference between the Saudis buying shares in Disney and buying a uh, 100 and whatever it is, 80-year-old football club, lock, stock and barrel, and the heritage that comes with that club and the sort of 50,000 strong fan base, some of whom may not want to be aligned with the Saudi regime. Barry, you're absolutely right. Football clubs are not businesses, in normal businesses. They should be treated differently. I've described them as listed buildings. They're protected heritage assets of this country. They're so important. You know, I think we did, we, did a, we did a fan survey where I think it was said that football clubs are more important to communities now than the church, uh, more important than any other what would be institution within the town or their city. We know this. So we have to ask ourselves the question, who can, who should own football clubs in England? And the problem is the horse has bolted. You know, 105, 105 years ago or something like that, Manchester United was saved by a very wealthy local businessman because the club were going bust. Uh, Mr Davies put all the money in, I think, at the time. And f well before that, wealthy business people from the local area have always owned football clubs and the majority of football clubs. They have never been fan-owned. Although sometimes the fan, sorry, the wealthy businessman would be a fan. We've now got a situation whereby I think Abramovich's introduction just transformed everything and it opened the door to international investment and basically the Glazer family then took that on a different to a different level again. I'm stuck with it a little bit, that one, because what do we now say? Only local business people in this country can own football clubs. What should, I, I always say to people when they say, well, you know, the Glazer family shouldn't be in. The, uh, Saudi Arabia shouldn't be in. And I will say, right, okay, then what are we going to do? I always say, what are we going to do? What's the answer? And no one ever has the answer. And then if they say, well, fans have got to buy the clubs, well, that means that we're going to have to grab the clubs and extract them illegally from these ownerships and basically break law to get them off them. Again, that's not something that I think we can achieve. What I do think we can achieve, and I think it's something that the regulator can help with, I genuinely believe 
that we can achieve a, a way of working in this country whereby there are they are owned all 92 clubs barring three or four are owned by basically wealthy funds business people families i think making a portion of the club available at the value that 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 club is to fans to invest in and that letting them have a meaningful say is potentially a way forward and i'm not a fan of the 51 49 rule by the way i i i'm not a fan of it so I don't believe in the 51-49 rule. I don't believe that German football is as rosy as people think. Um, it's got morals, but the game itself suffers badly through the fact that you've got this Bayern Munich that just basically go ahead every single year. And that's what would worry me if we went to a 51-49 over here. Before we end part two and uh, go into part three and ask you questions about getting cramp, is, this, is a, this is a question I've nicked off Barry, so sorry if you were going to ask it. Is this a kind of job application to be the regulator? Do you want to be... The regulator max it's absolutely the opposite of that because when you write a book like this you obviously cannot be the regulator <laughs> um, and the fact of the matter is i actually rule myself out within the book because any the regulator for instance the regulator itself by the way is not one person it's a panel of people that's that, that, that that's the first thing secondly that panel has to be independent of football clubs football organizations the Premier League and any other body that's associated with football. So anybody that's an owner of a football club, even my position with Sky, I believe, should rule me out as being uh, any part of any regulator panel. So I am not going to be the regulator. I am not going to be any part of the regulator panel. It is not something that is uh, even on my mind. It never should be because I'm conflicted heavily. I'm an owner of a football club. I speak on Sky Sports every single week. That's not going to change. I'm not, I'm not going to all of a sudden not be a football club owner or give up my job at Sky to go on a regulator panel. And it needs to be people who are independent and away from what would be the running of football. So it's absolutely not, no. All right, that'll do for part two. Back in one second. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, Gary, it's interesting reading about your job as a, a pundit and a co-com. That over the years, it's become a bit harder because you're just not as excited about doing it. Like any job is a job. Um, do you do you still love it? I still love it. Yeah. I mean, Monday night, uh, Monday night was special. It's the first time that I probably, to be fair, got carried away on uh, on goals being scored for probably a few years. Um, I love it. Yes. I, do I love more? I do love the big. I do love the big incidents, the big situations. I thrive on those. So if a Super League moment comes, or you know a big moment comes in in, in a weekend, I, I do live off those moments more uh, than I used to. And I think that. But then there are moments that bring it back to. I mean, the, the Lionesses the other week was amazing on that Sunday. It just absolutely captured everyone's imagination. I was sat there at home, absolutely loving it. And the same with United the other night against Liverpool. Absolutely loved it. So the game I'm still really passionate about, but I'm actually more passionate about the the business, sporting, political side of the game than I'm maybe the game. I have no interest to get onto a football pitch and do any coaching or any sort of 
you know, watching players train. I've got no interest with that. I love football players, but I have no interest in doing that side of it. Gary, um, after the Manchester United-Liverpool game, there was a sort of sniffy article in the Telegraph saying <laughs> you should keep, keep your emotions in check and only provide incisive analysis. I couldn't disagree more. Do you think it's important for you and Jamie and other pundits to be entertaining as well as informative? I, I honestly think the way in which football's now delivered, I think there is an element around that. that you know, what I would say is in the last 10, 12 years, there's been a great shift towards analysis. And, you know, The Guardian, The Independent, the other newspapers, the television channels now, they, they all, you all do brilliant analysis of football. Some of the times, me and, you, me and Carol on a Monday will be reading the newspapers and looking at some of the analysis of the weekend's games and the tactical analysis and think, that's a brilliant piece, that. What a fantastic piece. That, you know, it, it educates us. Uh, and we learn, obviously, from other TV channels as well. And that's become a real positive in the last 10 years. But what we must never lose, I always believe that when we're on television, we have to have passion in our debates. We have to make sure that we communicate. I think of myself as... We, we think of ourselves as being football ex-football players who have to behave at times like fans in a pub would after a game. Beat the, beat the shit out of each other. <laughs> <laughs> that, to me, is like two fans in a pub having a right go at one another after a game where they see a situation differently and they basically say, it's, it's his fault. No, it's his fault. And to me, if we don't bring that onto television or the humour or the passion or the celebration, what would we do? I wouldn't do it. I'd rather give in. If I, was just, if I was just sat there talking about underlapping fullbacks every week, which I'm happy to do sometimes, I would get really bored. And I think now the fan demands that you actually demonstrate emotion on television, that you demonstrate passion for what you're doing, that there is an element at times of, you know, being able to have those deba those heated debates, like fans doing pubs, like fans doing sort of, you know, on the way to the game in the car, on the bus, on the coach, on the way home. Fans argue about football. That's what we do. That's what we've done all our lives. We have to bring that onto television. And then when we score, honestly, on, on Monday night, I've never once celebrated on Colcom in 11 years at Sky. I think there was the goldgasm with Torres, which was more, it wasn't a celebration, it was more of a... We, no one knows what that was, yeah. yeah. The, the, on, Monday, on Monday, it was, oh my God, I'm witnessing Old Trafford, my ground, my club, my shirt, for the first time in three or four years, in a way which gives me goosebumps now, even thinking about what happened. And I just thought, I'm, I, you know, I didn't even think, I just went, just went for it. And I, the idea that that would be wrong to me is... You know, Stormzy comes in after the game, then the Lionesses come in, and then, you know, Roy Keane's getting, you know, I, I, sorry, Ronaldo gets a blanked Carragher. All these things make great television for me, and none of it's analytical. Have you, finally, have you really never had cramp? Because you said that on Coco, never. Ever had cramp in my legs in a football match in my life. And to you, I was always embarrassed when players used to be down with cramp. Yeah. It's like, come on, it's like, you know, we, we train hard, you know, how can you go down with cramp? Like, but anyway, I know people get it, so but I've never had I never once had cramp on a football pitch. Perfect. Uh, well, look, good luck with with um, becoming the regulator, and uh, and <laughs> we'll, we'll follow it with uh, with interest. Cheers for your time, Gary. Thank you both. Thank you. Uh, Gary Neville there. Uh, football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Daniel Stevens. This is the Guardian. Thank you.